0: Good morning, it's good to see everyone out this morning. Today we start our new summer series called Following the Faithful and each week uh, we'll take time to introduce our sermon with a a, a video that's geared mainly towards our children so we can engage those at home whose children are part of the service to to explain the story in a way that's relevant for them and so you'll see that each week before the sermon there will be a a video that will introduce the the message and the character that we're looking at and focusing this week and you can guess who we're going to be talking about today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up, to me, open up with me to Genesis chapter 4. Probably a very familiar passage to you that, that you've probably read numerous times. Uh, probably can quote from memory. But today we're going to look at verses 2 through 12. 2 through 12. And then once you find that, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. I'll read that to you, and then we'll pray, and we'll take a look at a few things from this passage. So picking up at verse 2, we find the words, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard so Cain was very angry and his face fell the Lord said to Cain why are you angry why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door its desires for you but you must rule over it Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer Yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. says this is is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask this blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness in speaking to us and revealing yourself to us. Because if you had not done that, uh, we would have no knowledge of you. We would be groping around in the darkness, worshiping all kinds of things, Lord. And uh, we thank you that you have taken time to make known to us about how you have interacted with humanity since the beginning of human history. And for that, we are very, very grateful to be able to look at lives, as Paul said, and use those things to teach us about you and about ourselves and how we would operate in your world, though some of the trappings of the world change. So we ask your blessing on our time, that you would be with us, that your spirit would minister to our hearts and minds, uh, that he would make known to us your word and help us to understand how we're to live in this world in light of what you've communicated and what you've done. Uh, And Lord, may we grasp onto that. May our hearts uh, be like the soil that, Lord Jesus, you described when you were on earth and told the parable of the soils, that it would be good soil, in which when the word uh, finds place, that it will sink down, find deep root, that it will endure, that it will grow and mature, and that it will produce fruit, much fruit, uh, Lord, to the glory of the Father and for our good. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, this year has been very different than many years that I've lived uh, here on planet Earth. It's been an unusual year. A lot of crazy things have happened this year. Let me just recount some of those for for you. Uh, Of course, we know about the the start of the year that there was a virus uh, that started off in a distant land that ultimately became a global pandemic that still lingers to this day, and we see the evidence of that with the mask that we wear this morning. Uh, I I, I Then after heard about the virus, there was the the, uh, mistreatment of people who looked like people or people thought that looked like people were from that area of the world, and they then began to mistreat people who they thought looked like people that they wanted to blame for the virus. And so there there began to be some of that going on in society. Uh, And in order to mitigate some of the effects of the virus, of course, as you know, businesses stopped opening their doors for most parts. Uh, churches stopped meeting in person, although we met online and in various other formats, and people stayed at home to try to, to limit uh, the spread of the virus. But then as days started to turn into weeks, uh, we started to notice that there were some economic hardships that started to emerge. as uh, Unemployment rates rose to record highs, some rivaling the, the Great Depression. Uh, as a result, some businesses started to fail. As I shared last night, there was a, a business we went to, went, went to go buy to to get some, uh, something similar to Rita's ice cream or Rita's um, Italian ice and uh, we went by and sadly they were no longer there uh, and it was not just that they, they didn't have the doors anymore, they were no longer open and they didn't seem to survive this time and that, that was a sad thing. Uh, then we saw as a result of that that there were some protests that started around the nation as people felt that, that they wanted to get back to work despite the risk of their health that because the, the economic hardship was too much for them, they, they wanted to have the opportunity So we saw these protests start to, to happen, uh, and then we saw things happening on social media as people disagreed on whether or not uh, you should or shouldn't wear a mask and how people felt about that, and so social media lit up a flame with people's personal opinions and thoughts as they insulted one another uh, and dealt with one another in not necessarily the most godly of ways. Then we had uh, problems with the government officials who couldn't seem to, to agree with one another about how to reopen and when to reopen or what was the best thing to do and there were tensions even in governmental leadership so much so that it left us as a population sometimes confused as to who to listen to and who to follow who was the right person when it came to trying to obey Romans 13 if you have one part of the government saying one thing and another government official saying something different and then in the midst of all of that we had an act of injustice that ended up because of the current technology was able to be viewed by the world and then as a result erupted in worldwide protests against an act of injustice. And then we saw in the midst of that, there was this whole other issue going on where there were people who took advantage of the protest about injustice to use for their own personal gain through riots and, and looting to take advantage of an already fragile situation. And then it seems like people in the church were divided over all of these various issues as we can't seem to agree about what a Christian response is. And in the midst of all this chaos that's been going on this year, it can seem like we can get caught up in one issue or the other issue or this other thing that's going on. And we lose sight of what we're actually supposed to be doing as Christians while we're on planet Earth, no matter what atmosphere we find ourselves in. Uh, And that is, as Paul has said on many letters as he writes to the churches, that we are called to live a life that is worthy of being called a child of God. And that for Paul and for others, as we see in the life of Jesus, means that we will live a life of righteousness. But in all the chaos and in all the confusion and in all the various opinions, it can be very easy to forget what a life of righteousness looks like because there's so many opinions, so many different attitudes, and so many things that you're dealing with yourself that it seems to just cloud what really we're here to do. So well, I just want to simply remind us in a big, broad way of what a life of righteousness looks like by just touching on, in an overview fashion, some of the main characteristics of a righteous life. And so we've chosen the story of Abel to do that, because in this short narrative, we find key, three key things that remind us of what a righteous life looks like in this world. And that's what I want to do today. Now, I want to admit up front that this story is not Abel's story. This is Cain's story. But Abel is mentioned in Cain's story, and I want to focus on him today. And that, because it is Cain's story, we will have to talk about Cain in uh, contrast with Abel. And so I want to do that. The first thing that I want to make you aware of, the first thought I want to offer to you, that we learn about a righteous life in this world that is true of the people of God is this, that Abel reminds us that in every era of human history, the righteous always have a right heart toward God the righteous always have a right heart toward God. Now you may be trying to wondering how I came to that conclusion. Uh, well, we were brought to this realization when we examine the worship of the two brothers in the text. Now the text, is the story is pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward, as you saw uh, in the video that we just aired for you. Uh, it's, it's a story about two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, who uh, at, at whatever time they come from their professions to worship God. Uh, and in this case, Uh, the word that's used in the text is not one that indicates that this is a sacrifice that we would find in the law. But the word that is used here actually deals with this is kind of what's going on is a a gift that is brought to express thanks to God. So this is not a sacrifice. It's a way to say thank you to God. And that's what's going on in the text. And we find out that God doesn't always accept people's worship. And this is our first time running into that idea which we run into later in scripture but God doesn't always accept people's worship just because they offer it and in this case that's what happened God chooses one brother and accepts his offering and to the other one he declines. no thank you is what God says to him I'm not going to accept that and then that that, that then raises for us a question Uh, is God playing favorites here between the brothers as we saw like with uh, Jacob and Esau, with Isaac, and is, is that the kind of situation that we're facing here? And I, and I don't think that's the case with God. And, and the reason why I'll tell you that I don't think that's the case is because I think the author of Genesis, who we would attribute to Moses, leaves some clues in the text about what's really going on. And, and, I, and I want to share those with you. The first clue we see is when we make a comparison between the two offerings. You have your Bibles open. Look back at the text with me at verse 3. I want you to notice there in the text the way that the author chooses to describe the gifts that are brought to God. When he talks about Cain, uh, there's there no modifications, no, no, no descriptive words, just he brought an offering. But when we get to Abel's offering, we notice that he uses two descriptions. One, he calls it the firstborn, and the other, he says, they're fat portions. Or if we would take those two descriptions together, which some do, what it really means is he brought the fattest of the firstborn of his flock. What, What the author wants us to know here is that Abel has brought the best from his profession that he has to offer to give it to God as a way of saying thank you. But when we compare it and look at Cain's in light of Abel's we see that Cain simply brings a gift. The implication of that is that whereas Abel brought his best from what he had to offer from his profession, That's not what Cain has done. He's brought just something. Not the best of what he has to offer. That's clue one. The second clue in the text comes at the end of verse 5. We notice Cain's disposition when God says no to him. Notice how Cain responds to God when God declines to accept what he wants to offer. Cain becomes Burning with anger, so much so that he can't even contain it, so as to hide it with his facial expressions. His body language displays the anger that he feels. Sometimes this happens with my kids when I tell them no; uh, they get frustrated and their face begins to display that uh, as I look at them and I say to them, "Why are you angry since I just told you no?" And then they say, "Right behind it, I'm not angry." And I'm like, "What your body's saying that you are." <laughs> Right? I'm sure you've experienced that, right? And this is the same thing that's happening here. God is looking at Cain as a parent to a child, and he notices that, that, that his response to the no is visible anger. He's seething. He's, he's boiling over. His emotions are out of control because he's frustrated that God has told him no. And usually when that happens, that's an indication of something else. That brings us to the third clue in the text. We notice it in the final verses, just we're picking up in verse 6 and afterwards, where God gives us insight into the situation as he gives parental counsel. Notice how God responds to Cain. He doesn't just simply wave him away. I'm not going to accept that. He says to him as a good parent, hey, listen, you didn't do that the right way. Let me help you. Here's the right way to handle this situation. Let me give you the guidance. If you want to be accepted, you need to do this. If you want to get this chore right, let Daddy show you how to do it. That wasn't the right way to do it. Let me walk alongside you and show you what's right. And so God offers to Cain, he says to him, listen, there's a right way to do this. And if you do it the right way, I'm going to accept you, son. But if you're not willing to change how you approach me, then that means that there's another issue going on. It's not the offering that's the problem. There's an internal problem going on in your heart. You're having a battle with sin. And you need to not allow sin to master you. But what we find out from the text as it unfolds, the story unfolds from us, we realize that Cain is unwilling to let go of his anger. He's unwilling to change. Repentance is not on his mind. And so when we put all those clues together, those three clues I've shared with you, we come to realize that this is a heart issue. And that's the problem in this text. Rabbi Licky put it this way. He said, look, It was not the offering per se, which was not commendable, but rather the offerer who did not come with a pure heart and clean hands, but with arrogance and disrespect. And it is to this that God's admonition pertains, warning him to be mindful of the sin of overbearing that always crouches nearby, which if he wills it, Cain can master it, uh, master it. What we learn from this is that the condition of our hearts toward God will always influence our worship and service of God. Abel, because his heart was right toward God, sought to offer his best to God because in Abel's heart what I believe was going on is that he had a desire to please God. And that's what we see as we look throughout the lives of the righteous throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The righteous always seek to have a right heart before God even when they have failure or fall into sin in their lives. Think back to Psalm 51. What is that context about? It's about David after a point in his life when he fell into sin, he sought to get his heart right with God. And David fell into the category of the righteous. See, for the righteous, worship and service of God is never just about the external things we do. It also engages our internal reality that both things have to be working together. This idea is repeated in the New Testament, this same kind of idea when Jesus tells a familiar parable that we've probably memorized ourselves. He tells this story about two men who go up to pray, and he chooses, as Jesus often does, those people in society that would not particularly fit those roles to to contrast what he wants to get across. In this case, he chooses someone who's highly religious and was known for being a religious person, a Pharisee. And then he chooses someone who was often viewed in society as would never be religious, would never be someone God would accept, at least from the religious standpoint of their day, a tax collector. And he says both men went to do something good. They went up to pray to God. But when they got there, something unexpected happens. There's a a turn in the story that you don't expect. And that is that the Pharisee prays, but he prays with prideful arrogance. And the tax collector with humility. The, the, the Pharisee, he simply says to God, God, I'm so thankful, but let me express the kind of thanks that I have. I look around at society and I see all these other people who are not like me, and I'm so glad I'm not like them. It's arrogance. But the tax collector, he recognizes his own sin, recognizes the wrong he's done before God. He won't even lift up his head in prayer to, to look to heaven. He's so ashamed about the life he's lived. He recognizes that he should not be in God's presence. And so he comes before God in humility, bows his head, and simply says to God to acknowledge his unworthiness, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say, which is surprising in the story? Whose prayer does God answer? The one you would not expect, the tax collector, the unworthy one, because he approaches God with the right heart. And so we learn from this as we see in other places that are illustrated from us that God is concerned not just about the gifts we offer, but about the heart that offers it. Because God knows how we really think and feel about him, as well as what we think and feel about ourselves. And so what the text seems to lay out to us is that a right heart produces right action toward God and toward others, as we take in the account uh, of the rest of the text in Genesis. So what might a right heart like Abel's offer to God in our present context? Well, Paul writes this to the Thessalonians that I think gives us a clue. Paul says this. Notice what the text says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, here we could say, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We see the same idea of first fruits in James 1.18 and Revelation. Fourteen four, and that is that. In some sense, through the work that Christ has done, that God orchestrated and designed Christ by saving us, have made us first fruits through His work. And what do you do with first fruits? When we read the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter two, verse fourteen, Proverbs three nine, and other passages that litter the Old Testament, we find out that first fruits are to be offered to God, just like the firstborn, because God lays claim on that which is first. As he is. And so it is only right to be given to God. And it's in light of this understanding that I believe that Paul, so we have that wonderful letter of Romans where he takes 11 chapters to lay out what God has done in Christ for us and our position in the world outside of the work of Christ and where we stood before God until Christ had uh, done the work that God had laid out so that we could be saved and brought into a right relationship with God. And he says, after all of this, that he's taken time to lay out what God has done. He says, listen, notice what he says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, we might say sisters here, by the mercies of God. Mercies of God here referring to all he's written in the previous 11 chapters to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, Paul has the idea because you now become first fruits, that it's only right that you give back to God what belongs to him and what belongs to him is you. He's saying that ultimately what is to be offered to God is the allness of who you are because you now belong to God as first fruit. And that's why in Corinthians, when he's talking to them, he says to them, listen, because you now belong to God, everything you do ought to be brought under this aspect of that. Everything that I live for is to bring glory to God. And he names many of things in that text at the end of chapter 10. He says, eating and drinking those daily activities are also to be done for God's glory because all of what you do and all of who you are belongs to God and ought to be offered up to him in worship. So the question I ask myself and I ask you, how has your worship and service of God been of late? Is it mere tokenism like Cain or is it true heartfelt worship and service like Abel? That brings me to the second thing I think that we learn from this text as we look at Abel's Brief life description in Genesis chapter 4. Abel also reminds us that often in this world, the righteous will suffer at the hands of ungodly people or the wicked. That the righteous will often suffer at the hands of the ungodly and the wicked. So first of all, you might be wondering, why do I classify Abel as righteous? Where did I get that idea from? Well, there's two at least things in the text that let me know that. First, the fact that God accepts Abel and his offering. The second thing we pick up from the New Testament, because that's the witness of the New Testament about Abel. There seems to be a consistent witness about Abel. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, uh, and then you see the same kind of thing in Luke, Jesus refers to Abel as among the righteous. And if Jesus calls you righteous, I think you're pretty much righteous, right? So if he says you're okay, then you're okay. Uh, And then we see in the writer of Hebrews, he refers to to um, Abel is righteous in chapter 11 verse 4 and then the Apostle John the same thing in 1st John chapter 3 verse 12 he refers to uh, Abel as righteous so there seems to be this consistent witness that in the New Testament Jesus and his Apostles look back at the Old Testament and when they look at Abel they put him in the category of the righteous versus the unrighteous but Cain is a totally different story so when we get to Genesis chapter 4 verse 8 We read about Cain, and it's so interesting that here God is reasoning with Cain. God is reasoning with Cain. But Cain won't even be persuaded away from his sin by God himself. He won't let go of his prideful anger. He refuses to change his disposition toward God. Now, Cain is angry with God, right? But Cain can't get to God to inflict hurt or harm upon God. So what does he do? What he esteems to be the next best thing. Well if I can't take my anger out on God I can vent it on my younger brother who's living a godly life. See Cain wanted God to accept the world on his terms. So Cain says God this is what I want you to have. And God says no I'm not gonna accept it that way. And Cain then becomes frustrated by that. And it may be because in Cain's own heart he felt as though his hard labor uh, was what really earned and brought about the produce in his life. That's why he prospered in his field. It wasn't because of God. It was because of him. He was the one who had worked the long hours. He was the one who had got up early and stayed up late. He's the one who had watered the plant. He had done all this work, and, the, and, and what he was enjoying was the fruit of his labor. And so now why would he give the best to God? Because he is the one who had actually done all the work. But Abel, by looking at him, who had also labored diligently, shows that Cain's thinking is deficient as he recognizes God's provision in his life. And what do you do when you're mad, you're angry, and you're unreasonable? If you can't get at the person that you want to get to, you find those who are like the person you want to get at. And if you can get to them, you take your anger out on them. And that's exactly what he does. Because Abel is a visible reminder that that Cain is wrong. His attitude is wrong. His way of thinking is wrong. And so what he decides to do is, I don't have to look at this reminder anymore. And so he decides to rid himself of Abel. And what we find in this very first uh, instance uh, of, of human evil towards other human beings, which was going to get proliferated throughout the Bible and throughout human history, we see a pattern. And that is that the righteous will often suffer at the hands of the wicked in this world. Let me cite, cite for a few examples just to bring that up as we walk through the history Of Of course, Pastor Mike shared a sermon about Daniel a few weeks ago, and in that we remember the reason why Daniel ended up in the lion's den is because there were some other officials who were jealous of Daniel, and they were wicked. Their hearts were not right toward God, but Daniel's was, and they wanted to get rid of him. And so what did they do? They concocted a plan in order to have him executed. We see the same thing in the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus end up from a human standpoint on a Roman cross? Because those who were in power, whose hearts were not right with God who had political power, be able to manipulate that power, didn't like Jesus and wanted to get rid of him. And as a result of that, he ended up on a Roman cross, accused of sedition. We see the same thing when we get to the New Testament after the era of Jesus' ministry in the life of the Thessalonian believers who have had a right heart toward God. They now are followers of Jesus, and they're being afflicted by those who are in society around them. Paul says to them, Hey, listen, this is because you're living a righteous life, and it proves that because others are standing against you and their hearts are not right. We have other examples from church history, early church history Polycarp, after the era of the New Testament, and then we have recent church history like Richard Wurmbrand. Those are some of the examples to let up, just to remind us that in this world, there will be persecution. Paul says as much when he writes to Timothy. He writes these words here. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While even people and apostles will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. See, what the scriptures want us to know is this, and it doesn't hide it from us. The scriptures have always been plain and clear up front that choosing to live a godly life in this world, choosing like Abel to seek to please God does not always mean that things will turn out for you well. And it can be costly to us as we seek to follow God. See, when you choose to be ethical on your job, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be rewarded and you're going to be given a promotion because you made an ethical decision. That's not always how it turns out. Sometimes following Jesus faithfully means that uh, there will be consequences in your relationship. Your family, your friends may not understand why you've chosen to make certain decisions according to God's word versus how they would have made a decision. And because you've chosen to align yourself with God and his way of living in the world, and they've not seen things that way, they choose to to ostracize you or put you out of that context. Sometimes when you choose to live by God's values instead of the world's values, you don't profit like those who choose to live by the world's values. So you don't end up with the wealth of the world or the popularity that, that others have. And sometimes when you choose to help people who are in bondage because you're like, look, I have a heart for these people. I see that they're enslaved. I want to set them free. I want to see them get out and enjoy freedom. That there are others who have been profiting from their bondage that don't like the idea of these people being set free, and so they become angry with you and work against you. And that's just some of the realities of the world. And there are some some realities that in some places in the world, when you go out to share the gospel and tell others about what God has done, it might end up with you receiving some jail time. You might be incarcerated for doing that. But it's into this context that we are called to follow the way of Christ. Because Jesus reminds us there's far more going on and you've got to think about the end as you're living through the process. And he said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So what are your expectations about living a godly life? What did you expect the road would look like to be faithful to God in this world? Do you find yourself frustrated when you seek to make a choice for God and you want to honor Him, but you're not rewarded for it? Do you find inward uh, anger burning like Cain? Or do you humbly accept that and say, I have to remember that saints suffer in this world? That's the reality. That brings me to the third point in the text that Abel reminds us of. And is that Abel reminds us that the righteous must trust God to vindicate them. The righteous must trust God to vindicate them. So there's this reality that we're called to live a godly life. There's a reality that as we live a godly life, we're going to rub people the wrong way. And some of those people that we rub the wrong way are going to respond to that rubbing because it's going to irritate them. And they, like Cain, are going to allow their anger to take over, and they're going to then act that anger out on us, who, like Abel, seek to live a godly life. However, when we look at the writings of the New Testament, when we look at what Jesus taught his disciples, and we look at what the apostles then took from Jesus and encouraged believers to do, we're always encouraged not to follow the path of retaliation. Notice what Paul says in the letter to the Romans. He writes this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Apostle Peter then cites from Jesus' own life an example and says that we ought to follow that example when he writes these words. For to this, that is you as a believer, have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we see God rendered that judgment in the resurrection. God did judge justly. Humanity rendered its verdict on Jesus, found him guilty, and said he's not the Messiah and pronounced death. God overturned that verdict and said, no, the higher court, the highest court, finds him righteous and right. He is the Messiah. And God then gave him life, and he lives now forevermore, never to die again. See, it is God in whom we must must put our trust for justice and vindication and not seek to return what others have done to us as wrong. We see this in the text, that God is the one who takes care of his people after the untimely death of Abel. Of course, Abel could not advocate for the injustice done to him. He could not go back and say, hey, Cain wronged me out in the field, God. He he couldn't do that. But notice in the text, Genesis chapter 4, look at verses 9 to 10. We see that God doesn't miss a beat. He knows exactly what's going on on earth. He sees it. He hears it. He's well aware. There's nothing that slips by him. And in light of that, we see in verses 11 and 12 that God does something in human history about what Cain has done. He brings justice upon Cain. And not only do we see this at the beginning of the Bible, but we see the same example at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. If you were to turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 17, I won't read it for you. I'll just give you a synopsis of what happens there. This is the fifth and the sixth seal that have be opened by the Lamb that was in God's hand. In the fifth seal, we have the saints, the martyrs, who have lost their lives in the light of the generation of the church, who have given up their lives. Uh, because the wicked have pursued them and unjustly taken their lives. And they cry out to God, Lord, won't you bring justice? Will you not do something? And then when the sixth seal is open, it's God's response to what happens in the fifth seal, to the cry of the martyrs. What does he do? He brings final judgment on the entire world, that great and dreadful day that, uh, that has been talked about by the Old Testament prophets, the main theme in the minor prophets. See, the reality is that the righteous, the scriptures encourage us that as you live a godly life and you suffer wrongs in this world, don't seek to repay people. Trust God that he will bring about true justice because he's the one who can do that righteously. See, it's our anger does not work the righteousness of God. So we're entrusted, we're to be like Jesus and trust that God will ultimately judge justly. So the question is, are you trusting God or are you seeking to get vengeance yourself? against those who wronged you. That brings me to my final thought, and as you probably have realized, there's something I have left unaddressed in this message. You might be thinking of Romans chapter 1 through 3, Ephesians chapter 2 at the beginning, of Titus chapter 3 at the beginning, and you realize that there is a reality about humans, that humans, when left to ourselves, we always make decisions that put us in the category of the wicked. And the question then becomes, how do I get out of the category of the wicked into the category of the righteous? How do I switch camps? Uh, and that has to—if it has to do, as you said, it's a—it's a heart issue. How do I, I get a change of heart? I believe we find the, the answer at the end of the text in Romans. I'm mean, sorry, in Hebrews chapter twelve, at the last part of the verse. I'll quote the whole context so that you can get the feel of what the author is saying. But it happens right at the end of the verses. He writes this starting at verse twenty-two of chapter twelve. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The, te- the text tells us the answer to our question is none other than the blood of Jesus Christ. Scholar K.A. Matthews explained it this way. He says, Ironically, though Abel never talks in Genesis, his testimony of faith speaks or continues to speak. His voice cries out for revenge against the unrighteous who oppose God's work among the saints. And although it is Abel's blood that convicts the sinner, it is the blood of Christ that makes adequate reparations for the sins of the unrighteous, offering forgiveness and not vengeance. Speaking a better word than Abel. Whereas Abel's voice cries out for the injustice in the world and says to God, Lord, bring justice upon those who have done wrong. Christ's blood cries out for something different. It says, yes, I understand that they're unrighteous, but I've paid the cost for their unrighteousness. For those who are willing to repent, have mercy on them, forgive them, and reconcile them to yourself. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and for salvation for the unrighteous sinner. And that is how we are moved from the category of the wicked to the category of the righteous, by the blood of Jesus who cleanses us and gives us his spirit, who changes our heart from seeking to live for ourselves to seek to live like Jesus did. And as we see in this small context, able, that is to have a desire to please God in everything we do. That is how we get from the category of the wicked to the category of the righteous. So I want to kind of sum up, what does this look like in a real person's life when we live and these truths are operating in our lives? I want to to recall for you the life story of Richard Wormbrand, the the founder of The Voice of Martyrs, and share with you his life story in summary to to show you how this plays out in a real life in human history and how these things, these thoughts I share with you work out. So Richard was born in Bucharest, Romania. Uh, He was born there in the early 1900s, uh, in 1909. Uh, he grew up and happened to be a very gifted in- individual. Uh, one of the ways we knew that is because he learned to speak nine languages fluently. Uh, he was involved in politics and ultimately became a stockbroker. When he was in his mid-20s, he, uh, like most of us, he, the God worked it out when he met a nice young lady named Sabina Oster, and he met her, and uh, they ended up getting married when he was about 27 years old. Uh, neither of them were believers at the time, but about two years later, there was a German carpenter who uh, God orchestrated that was in their lives, And shared Christ with them. And as a result of that testimony, both he and his wife came to faith. And their life went in a brand new direction. He ended up leaving that career and ended up getting involved and becoming an Anglican Anglican minister and ultimately uh, a Lutheran pastor. And then the world went into chaos. World War II happened. Richard and his wife Sabina then, as believers with faith in Jesus Christ, saw opportunity among the chaos that was going on in the world and in their specific country of Romania. He saw that there were opportunities to share Christ with others. That is, with those occupying hostile German forces that were coming in, he shared Jesus with them. He went into bomb shelters, he and his wife, and ministered to people who were there and rescued Jewish children who were like them, Jewish as well, from ghettos and things like that. And during this time, as a result of that, as they were sharing Christ and ministering to help others and to free them, they suffered at the hands of those whose hearts were not right with God. On several occasions, they were beaten. Sometimes they were uh, put in very harmful situations, and, in, and at least on one, one specific instance, they almost had a Cain and Abel experience. And during this period of time, his wife lost her family, of course, to the concentration camps, but they continued to serve God. And finally, the war came to an end, but right after the war came to an end, the government changed, and Romanian communists took over and seized power, and Russian troops now invaded their land. But they didn't stop they continued in the same direction. Now they continued to minister to those who were their countrymen who were oppressed and saw opportunity now among Russian soldiers to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's exactly what they did. And when they had an opportunity to represent Christ, that's exactly what they did. That same year of 1945, right after World War II, the new government held a, a forum which was called the Congress of Cults. And, and And there they allowed religious leaders to stand up and profess their loyalty to the communist government and state how wonderful communism is and to the new regime that had taken over. But when Richard had his chance to stand up, that's not what he did. Instead, what he did is stood up and as a follower of Jesus Christ, he said to the entire nation because it was being aired uh, over the radio that believers were to give their allegiance to God and to Christ alone and not to the government that had taken over. I'm sure you realize that that did not gain him popularity with the current government. But over the next two years, he continued to be faithful. He and his wife working, putting out gospel tracts and sharing gospel messages with those who were occupying their land, seeking to to share the gospel. They they ended up getting out over a million gospels to Russian troops and and helped to get gospels smuggled into Russia to to minister to those who were there who had not heard about Jesus Christ. They continued to be faithful. In the following year after 1947, of course, on his way to church of all places he was heading to, He was arrested by the secret police of the government. He was taken and put into prison where he would spend the next 16 years of his life. And during his 16-year stint there in prison, his wife would be arrested for three of those years and their nine-year-old son would be left homeless. And thankfully, other believers who they had ministered to took him in and cared for him until his wife was able to be released. And finally, he was released under an amnesty clause and he continued to work for Jesus and it was through the or, two other organizations paying about $10,000 that ransomed ran him that allowed him to leave Romania because he had been a political prisoner. And he did that. At first, he did not want to leave his home country, but there were other voices in the underground church and voice encouraging him, saying, Brother, you can do more good to the cause of Christ if you go out and let others in the other part of the world, the West, uh, know about what's happening to us as believers over here in these countries. And so that's what he did. And as a result of that, he left and moved to Norway, England, and finally America. And started the organization we know today as the Voice of the Martyrs, to which now there are ministries in over 60 countries. continuing to let others know and minister to those who are suffering on the behalf of Christ. And in 2001, he passed away after being faithful to Christ for some almost 92 years there of life as he uh, had lived. And what I get from that, as we see this, that as we seek to live a godly life in this world, people are not always going to be happy about what we've done as we seek to serve God. And sometimes the world is going to push back. Sometimes we're going to find ourselves in some very uncomfortable situations. And in those moments, we are called to stay faithful to Christ despite what we experience. And we're called that when we experience hardship, to not allow anger to rule our lives and cause us to want to retaliate and cause harm to others, but instead to humble our hearts before God, knowing that he will do justice, and praying because the blood of Christ says something better than the blood of Abel, that God would ultimately change their hearts. As he has changed our hearts so that they might experience the freedom and transformation that we have experienced. And that's what it means to live a life of righteousness in this world. That's what it means to live a righteous life. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the testimony of Abel. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to live a righteous life. May all of our heart be engaged in what we do. May we not be just token uh, in the sense of just going through the motions of worship and service of you. Be, but be truly heartfully engaged in the worship and service, in your service. And God, when we encounter hardships in this world because others don't see things the same way we do, may our hearts be filled with compassion, filled with mercy. And we can see, seek, as a Richard and a Sabina did, Lord, to continue to see opportunities to minister to others and not to try to repay them for the wrong that they've done to us, knowing that you will bring true justice. But what we would really like to see is that you would change their hearts and bring them into a relationship with yourself, that you would reconcile them and allow them to become new as you've allowed us to become new. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you